0: Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. This audio will cover 2 Corinthians chapter 13, 1 through 14, the end of the chapter. Our context is this, Paul, for the last several chapters, starting in chapter 10, has been defending himself vehemently against his critics in Corinth, the false apostles, the so-called super-apostles. He's defending himself in several ways. He's blasting their motives and their, their godliness, their fake Christianity. And on the other hand, he is defending himself by pointing out what a great apostle he was, how much suffering he's gone through, the shipwrecks, the trials, the beatings, the whippings, and so forth, all for the Corinthians. And he's appealed to the purity of his conscience and so forth. So he's defending himself while at the same time attacking the other apostles. He's going to continue that in the last chapter before he gives his final sign-off to the Corinthians. So we say here in 2 Corinthians 13, 1, Paul says this, we see here in 2 Corinthians thirteen one. This is the third time I'm coming to you, Paul says. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, Paul's already mentioned this in the last chapter, but this is the third time. He mentions it again. The first time was the letter to Corinth. The second time was the so-called painful visit. And the third time is this time coming down from Macedonia after having sent Titus and the praised brother and the tested brother down to Corinth to finish off that collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem. This is Paul's third time coming to Corinth where he's going to stay down there for 18 months before he goes back to Jerusalem. Now, I say that some people dispute whether it's actually the third time. Some say he was actually planning for a third time. I don't believe it for a minute. But John Gill and Adam Clark say that, that this second epistle, that this is the third time I'm coming you to you. He said the the second epistle that Paul had sent the Corinthians, the so-called severe letter, the painful letter, that that was counted as a visit. And so the second visit was not the actual painful visit, but was the pain, severe letter. I don't believe that. John Gill says that uh, perhaps Paul never made a second visit, and that would be by referring to the painful letter as a visit. I don't believe that. Uh, one thing that uh, adds confusion here, remember all these old commentators that I use, they all use the King James, and the King James translates it this way, I foretell you as if I were present a second time, as if I were present a second time, and one of my commentators says the English version, the KGV, is quite inconsistent with 2 Corinthians 13, 1, where Paul says, this is the third time I'm coming to you, especially when in verse 2 he says, I warned them while absent, as I did when present on my second visit. So the second visit, he was present. So I I take that to be the severe visit, the painful visit. And so this is the third time. First time is when he started the church in Acts 18. The second time is the painful visit, probably sometime between the first and second letter. We don't know when exactly. And the third time that he's planning to come is when he follows the letter of 2 Corinthians on into Corinth as he follows Titus, Titus and the praised brother and the tested brother down into Corinth as he prepares to stay there for 18 months, collecting the money for the poor relief fund to carry to Jerusalem as he gets ready to return home at the end of the third journey. Now Paul says at the end of verse 1, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Some people say that he's referring to the two visits and the third visit would be the third time that he had come and testified to his innocence. And so, hey, that's enough. I've proved it with three witnesses. That's according to the Old Testament Jewish law, which of course is well established, Deuteronomy 19:5, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so, so pe- people argue, and it does sound like it. Paul is referring to that as he said, "It's the third time. I got three witnesses. I'm innocent." And the church discipline verse also goes along with that, Matthew 18:16. If he, the sinning brother, does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So that was a common judicial proceeding, and Paul is using that, so it is said. Or it could be that Paul is not referring to the three visits. He's just referring to the to old, established Old Testament law that it takes two or three witnesses. He's not particularly referring to the three visits, but I think he is. Here are some other options. Well, the idea that Paul's witness was backed up by his three visits, as, as, which constituted three witnesses. John Gill, Adam Clark, and James Foster and Brown all mentioned that, but here's another option. Maybe the three witnesses are Stephanatus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. Remember, they were in Ephesus having come from Corinth, and Paul had sent them back at one time, and so Paul is saying, hey, those three guys establish my innocence too. Every charge is established by three witnesses, and there they are Stephanatus Fortunatus Stephanus Fortunatus and Achaicus, the three leading brothers at Corinth. Well, that's clever. Clark denies it. I don't think it's true. So here are three options. He's referring to the three visits, those are his three witnesses. Or he's referring to three brothers, Stephanatus Fortunatus and Achaicus. those are his three witnesses. Or third option Yes, Paul would use judicial fairness when he arrives at Corinth, as Demonson, Fawcett, and Brown affirms. There's no reference to the three visits. He's just saying, look, I'm going to have plenty of evidence when I get to Corinth, and I'll prove it to you with three witnesses. I mean, after all, he's going to have Stephanatus, Fortunatus, Achaeus, Titus, the praised brother, the tested brother, plus all the people who knew him when he was there at Corinth before. He's going to have plenty of witnesses to prove he's innocent. We go now to verse 2, chapter 13. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit. That would be the painful visit. That if I come again, I will not spare them. And that's one reason that visit was painful. Paul led them to riot act said, you guys better straighten up and quit shacking up with your secretary or whoever it is you're shacking up with. So this sounds very much like The second visit, because he says, I warn you, I warn you, all of you who are sinning, I'm not going to spare you. That does sound like a painful visit. So I I suspect that's what it is. Now, when he says, I will not spare them, what's he going to do to them? I imagine it's verbal chastisement. He's going to read them the riot act. But Adam Clark goes farther than that. He says the apostle could miraculously inflict punishment. But Adam Clark and John Gill, these old commentators, they love to say that apostles could make people die, could curse people and kill them, or make them blind and stuff like that. I don't believe that. I know what happened with Peter and Ananias and Sapphira in at the establishment of the early of the church in Jerusalem uh, about 25 years earlier but I don't believe that's what the apostles do. And I think he's just going to he's going to denounce them in front of the church and ask that the church to excommunicate them. 2 Corinthians 13:3 Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me that's in the middle of a sentence, so let me let me go back to verse 2. If I come again I will not spare them since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. Now, that could refer to the fact that it takes two or three witnesses. And then he goes down to verse 2, verse uh, 3, and says, Since you seek proof that Christ is seeking in me. In other words, you're looking for proof. I'm going to have the proof, and then I'm going to blast the people who are blasting me. I'm going to blast them for their sexual immorality. You're looking for proof. I'll give you proof, but it's not going to be proof that you like. It's going to be proof that your beloved fake apostles are living in sexual immorality or whatever else they're doing. Preaching the gospel for profit, as he says. Making godliness a means of profit. Marketing the gospel. He's going to, that's the kind of proof he's going to come up with. And he's got plenty of proof to defend himself. And then he says, He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. Who is not weak in dealing with you? That would be Jesus working through Paul the apostle. Again, okay, again, he's referring to the fact that the, his opponents are always calling him weak. Oh, he's short. His speaking is no good. Paul says, yeah, you can say that about me all you want, but the Jesus who works in me, he's not weak, and he's going to deal with you guys. He is powerful among you. I'm referring to that verse in 2 Corinthians 2 Corinthians 10.10, 10, I'm sure Paul is thinking about this. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. So... Paul is quoting his opponents, talking about how weak he is. And he's referring to that here in verse 3. Hey, I might be weak, but Jesus is not weak in dealing with you. He's powerful among you. So Paul is identifying himself with Christ's power. Paul has power. Christ has power, and Paul has power too. As the NIV Study Bible correctly points out, rebellion against Paul is rebellion against Christ. It's the same thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. So Paul is going on with the analogy, hey, you say I'm weak, guess who else was weak? His name was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He was weak. He was nailed upon a cross. Ah, but look what happened. He lives. That means he was resurrected again by the power of God. It took power to take somebody who's dead and hanging on a cross to make him rise again. Paul continues with the analogy. He's comparing himself with the weakness of Christ and the power of Christ that works in him. He says, for we also are weak in him. Why? Well, Paul was subjected to infirmities, persecutions, just like Jesus was, scourgings, whippings, just like Jesus was. So Paul says, yeah, we are also weak in him, in Christ, because when we, when we identify with Christ, when we are in union with him, the world comes after us. But... In dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Just like Jesus was weak on the cross and lived again by the power of God, likewise, we will live with Christ by the power of God. Now, he's not talking about being resurrected like Jesus was What he's talking about. We have the power to inflict God's judgment on these false apostles. Now, of course, he's going to turn it over to the church to, to do church discipline. He's not going to step on their authority, but he's going to lead them into doing what they need to do, which is to kick the guys out, which, of course, they've already done, actually. They've already done that with the guy sl- sleeping with his stepmother, but there were still others there, assuming this these four chapters are the, are, are, an, are an integral part of Second Corinthians. There are still people who he mentioned in the end of the last chapter who were living in sexual immorality and sensuality, and he's going to say, "Hey, we're going to take care of that." Again, this idea of power and resurrection. Paul mentions it in Romans one four. Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power. How was he declared to be the son of God in power? According to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. That's how Jesus Christ, our Lord. I mean, it takes a lot of power to raise somebody from the dead. Now we go to second Corinthians thirteen five. Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, test yourselves. Now Let me read it this way. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, test yourselves. What he means is, Hey, I know that you know that you're Christians. And if you're Christians, how did you get that way? Because I, Paul, led you to the Lord. I'm your spiritual father. So if you're in the Lord and you're in the faith, what does that make me? That makes me a true apostle. You're a spiritual father. And these people who are knocking me and saying that I'm worthless, they don't know what they're talking about. So Paul says, test yourselves. Or do you not realize that this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? And, of course, he it's this rhetorical question. He means he means the expected answer is yes. Of course, they realize that Jesus Christ is in themselves. Paul appeals to the subjective witness of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the Corinthians. And then he says, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Now, what Paul is doing is putting the Corinthians in a logical box. If they test themselves and examine themselves and say, yeah, I'm a Christian, that means that, hey, Paul's their spiritual father, so therefore Paul's right. If they test themselves and decide they're not in the faith, well, then what are they criticizing Paul for? For not being in the faith. They haven't got any right to criticize Paul if they think they're not Christians. So Paul is appealing. The, the foundation of his argument here is their Christianity. The fact that they are born again and they know it. Because, all, you know, Christians know if you're born again or not. This idea of appealing to a subjective witness is not good enough. That's actually true. It takes subjective witness, too. It takes miracles. Paul mentioned all the miracles he had done among them. He used objective witness. But he also appealed to the purity and sincerity of his conscience in the earlier part of this book. And now he's appealing to the subjective witness of the Corinthians. So there's nothing wrong with using both subjective witnesses and objective witnesses. Nothing wrong at all. Not only other objective witnesses, he appealed to the Corinthian church as an objective witness. He said, look at you, I've established this church. Hey, that's evidence that I'm of God. Nothing wrong with objective witnesses, nothing wrong with subjective witnesses. We don't need a false dichotomy to say we need one over the other. We need them both. Even though subjective witnesses by themselves are subjective, obviously, by definition, and people can therefore deny them easily. Now we go to Second Corinthians 13, 6. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. I suppose that means the test is whether I'm a true apostle or not. And again, that's the editorial we, he's talking about Paul, I, Paul. I hope that you will find out that I have not failed the test, he means. And of course, Paul was totally confident they would discover Paul had passed the test. He was obviously no reprobate. They knew that Jesus Christ was in him. He had led him to the Lord. So when he says hope, he means I absolute confident expectation that they're going to know that Paul is a true apostle. He has not failed the test. Now, if they do think he's failed the test, well then guess what? They're his spiritual children, so I guess they failed the test too, as Jameson Fawcett Brown points out. Now, he knows that that's not going to happen. He knows that they're saved, so he's saying, look, he basically what he's doing here is appealing to his spiritual fatherhood. Quit listening to these false apostles. I, I led you to the Lord. You know it. I know it. So examine, your, examine yourselves, and then you'll know it, and then you'll know that I'm the real deal. I'm a true apostle, not a false apostle. We go to Second Corinthians 13, verse 7, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. Now, Paul, this is one of Paul's, what I call his little turgid prose, hard to understand what he's talking about. Well, first of all, let's talk about when he says, we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Paul there is referring to the various sins of the Corinthian church, as the end of his study Bible points out. And, of course, if you read 1 Corinthians, you will see that the Corinthian church was divided in factions. They relied on fleshly philosophical wisdom and Greek rhetoric. They were spiritually immature, drinking milk of the word rather than eating meat of the word. They did not exercise church discipline against the man who was sleeping with his, not with his mother-in-law, with his stepmother. The Corinthians were suing each other in pagan courts and making horses asses out of themselves in front of a pagan public and hurting the gospel of christ they were abusing the lord's supper getting drunk at the lord's supper and eating having a big feast before the poor brethren got there that's what most people think and i think that's true they abused spiritual gifts because the uh the revelation gifts were being used by folks to to stomp on other gifts so that uh only some people were exercising the gifts in the body and others were not and they were tolerating people who deny the resurrection of the dead. Okay, so they had a lot of stuff. And so Paul says, look, that's what I'm concerned about, not whether I pass the test, not whether you think I'm a true apostle or not, although that's important, but the main thing I'm interested in is that you quit all this nonsense. He says, I pray to God, not that we may appear to have met the test, nor it's not that you think that we are true Christians, but rather that you quit doing all this sinful stuff that's wrecking the church. And he says, I, I I pray to God that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. In other words, even if you think I failed and I'm not a true apostle, I'd still my main goal is that you do right, even if you think I'm not a good apostle. He's he's putting the priorities where they belong. Let me read that again. This is from the NIV Study Bible. Paul's ultimate purpose is not appearing to everyone to have passed the test. Rather, he wants them to know that Paul is a Christian and therefore their spiritual father. So, in other words, it's not just doing right that he wants. And it's not just appearing to pass the test. He wants them to know that he's passed the test. He'd know that he's a spiritual father. So therefore, they should quit listening to the false apostles, and therefore, they should quit all their sins. So Paul won't have to chastise them on their arrival. And Paul is really speaking hypothetically. He says, though we may seem to have failed, he's not going to seem to have failed the test, but he's saying, just in case you think I have failed the test, remember, that's not my ultimate motive. The ultimate motive is that you do right and not do wrong. And if you think that I failed the test that these false apostles are putting up, trying to pr- prove that we're not true apostles and that we are failing their test, well, just remember, I'm your spiritual father. I passed that test. So we may seem to have failed in the eyes of the false apostles, but we had not failed in the eyes of re- in the eyes of God and in your eyes because we are your true spiritual father. And even if we do prove that we're your that I'm your spiritual father that's not my main concern my main concern is that you do right before God now this when Paul says I may seem to fail the test again the false apostles would make him fail the test of true apostleship by appealing to his mean appearance he's he's short and his lousy speaking ability his speech is contemptible and I don't they don't say that he's bald but a lot through church history people said he was bald now here's another interesting idea from Jameson Fawcett and Brown they point out that Paul suggests that, he, that Paul may have seemed to have failed the test in the eyes of the Corinthians because the Corinthians' repentance would deprive Paul of the chance of exercising apostolic authority. So he says, look, if, you, if it looks like that I failed the test of being a true apostle, then I'm not going to be able to come before you as an apostle and suggest that you do right. And I don't want that to happen. I want you to do right. And so if you're not going to listen to me, if you're not going to consider me a true apostle... If you're going to deem me, if it seems in your eyes that I failed a as, test as a true apostle, well, then do right anyway and don't depend on me to do it. But I really think it's more of a rhetorical thing. He expects to pass the test in front of the false apostles and in front of the church. We go to verse 8, 2 Corinthians 13. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. Now, here Paul says, look, I'm not just trying to be an apostle. I'm trying to establish the truth here. This is not anything personal. I'm not trying to defend my ministry. And folks, And when you get into a situation where you have to defend the truth, the first thing that people will do is you're just trying to prove yourself right. I remember one time I got into a big controversy one time, and I finally decided I saw a way. I mean, I wasn't speaking to a brother for eight years because of it. And I got to the point, I said, I think the situation is now where I can straighten it out. You know, it's a complicated situation. And when I asked to meet with a brother by email, he said, You're just trying to prove that you're right. And I, th- and I wrote back, I said, I can't believe it. You know me all my life, and you say that I'm only interested in proving that I'm right. Come on. And he wrote me, you know, he was very apologetic and everything was cool and went and talked to him, and he didn't act like that at all. But his first reaction was, You're just trying to prove that you're right. And that, that was really instructive to me because people have a hard time believing that people are speaking only for the truth and not for themselves. Well, Paul makes it clear. He says, oh, Look, I'm not speaking. For myself, I'm speaking only for the truth. I can't do anything against the truth. I can only speak for the truth, not to establish himself as a big shot apostle. And of course, he knows if he establishes the truth, then he won't have to do any disciplinary action when he gets to Corinth. He won't have to complain because everybody will be flying right and not sinning anymore. Second Corinthians thirteen nine: For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Paul goes back to the weak strong metaphor. He's already mentioned that he's weak, but he's, the, he, but in Christ he's powerful, just like the resurrection of Christ was powerful. And so he plans to be powerful when he exercises his authority in the church. And now he shifts the metaphor a little bit, and he says we're weak. In other words, we don't have to exercise our authority. We don't need to be strong among you. We can be weak among you. Why? Because you're strong, because you're doing what's right. You've repented. You've straightened up the mess in the Corinthian church, so we don't have to be strong. We can be weak. We don't have to exercise church Uh, exercise apostolic authority in a strong way anymore. Why? At the end of verse 9, your restoration is what we pray for. Now notice that all chastisement, all church discipline, as a matter of fact, is for restoration. Your restoration is what we pray for. Paul's goal was restoration, not punishment. He didn't have to punish them a bit. the, The sin itself carried its own punishment. The fact that they learned their lesson and they repented, that's good enough. Now remember, Paul has already received word from Titus, who came back up from Corinth, and he told Paul that the Corinthians were flying right and everything's cool. Now Paul's been a little severe here, so severe that people, sometimes people say, some people say that chapters 10 through 13 is the severe letter. They got tacked onto the end of the second Corinthian letter. I don't think so, but we do have to note the change of style here. He's going back and warning them again, hey, you're flying right. Titus says you're flying right, but let's keep it that way. Don't backslide back into your former evil ways. 2 Corinthians 13.10 For this reason, Paul continues, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. And of course, Paul appeals to his authority here, but it's again, his moral authority. He can't do anything unless the church agrees to it, unless the church agrees to kick out Sinners that are committing sexual immorality or whatever, I mean, what is he going to do, call the police, call the secular government to enforce his orders? Of course not. He only had moral authority, and that moral authority was given to Paul for building up and not for tearing down. Again, many people who are sinners they think that when authority is exercised against them, it's just to tear them down. You don't love me. You don't want me to. You just want me to no have no social life. But you won't let me go out and date those nasty drug-running testosterone-filled boys. I love them. You you just tear me down. You're tearing down my social life. You know you've heard it. kids do that all the time, and adults can be like kids too. And so Paul has to tell him, look, I'm not trying to make your life miserable. I'm trying to help you. We go to verse eleven, Second Corinthians 13. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Ah, is nothing better than a church that has all that. Restoration, comfort, agreement, peace, love. Can't beat it with a stick. And remember, restoration, aim for restoration. The main purpose of church discipline is not discipline. It is restoration. We probably ought to say church discipline and restoration every time we confront the term, or any time we use the term. We go to 2 Corinthians 13, 12-14, and we will finish up 2 Corinthians. Greet one another with a holy kiss, Paul says. This is a standard sign-off he uses. Holy kiss is still a common use in the Near East. It's comparable to a handshake in the Western world. It is a cultural thing. Nobody argues today that Christians ought to do because of a pattern, ought to kiss people on the cheek with a holy kiss. Nobody would argue that. It is obviously a non-theological cultural practice. However, I would like to point out that gender roles for men and women are not cultural. They are transcultural. They apply to every culture. Chinese, Mongolian, Californian, American, and British. It doesn't matter. Gender roles are rooted in God's creation. We have to emphasize that now because half Western culture can't distinguish a man and a woman. You just declare what you are when you're born. Oh no, you're too young, so you have to give you. You got to have your parents give you gender-arresting drugs, puberty-delaying drugs, so that you can make your decision on what gender you're going to be at 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 the age at a a responsible age. This is nothing but child abuse. It is amazing to me that is how corrupt and degraded our unisex, anti-gender culture has become. Feminism on steroids. Here it is, ladies and gentlemen church didn't listen to the world the world didn't listen to the church about feminism and half the church adopted feminism and now we're paying the price but that has nothing to do with the holy kiss so i would hope that no evangelical feminoxy would try to use this passage to support his gender-bending theology paul says all the saints greet you that would be all the saints in ephesus The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Notice the Trinitarian formula there. The NIV Study Bible says, Ever since that benediction has been written, it has been part of the Christian worship tradition. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will be with you. And fellowship is koinonia, which means sharing, participation, communion of the Holy Spirit. We're one with the Holy Spirit, which means we're one with God. We are in union with God. We are in union with Christ. That's a test if you want to get past that test. You want to know whether you're in the Lord or not? Check that one out. Are you in union with Christ? If you're in union with Christ, you're going to know it. I like these pre-sub apologists. They've got a standard answer when they ask uh, atheist or evolutionist, could you be wrong? And they say, well, of course I could be wrong. And then they do a 2 cork way. They say, well, what about you? You could be wrong, too. You could be wrong about Jesus. And the pre-sub apologist answers and said, no, I'm married to my wife. I can't be wrong about being married to my wife. I'm married to Jesus. I'm in union with Jesus. I know him. You I can't I, I can't be wrong about that. And that again is an appeal to a subjective experience But hey, like I just finished saying There's nothing wrong with doing that Paul does it all the way through 2 Corinthians Ladies and gentlemen, we are finished with 2 Corinthians chapter 13 And with the book of 2 Corinthians In our next audio We're going to start with the book of Galatians And Paul starts dealing with that nasty problem of legalism Hope you stay tuned for that audio Hope you enjoyed this one